We're going to be in Acts this morning, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. And I just remind you this morning that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that he is the one that we turn to in our darkest hours and in our struggle that we don't know what to do with. It is the Lord Jesus who hears our prayer. And so this morning, we are going to see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, as we spoke of last week, and preaching to an audience, an audience of people from all over the known world, and by a work of God's Spirit, able to be understood by those that he is preaching to. And what does Peter speak about? And he's got this once-in-a-lifetime audience of everybody gathered there this morning, filled by God's Spirit. He, of course, speaks of Jesus and his cross, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the opportunity of salvation for all those who will believe. He speaks about repentance, about belief, about being baptized, about having new life in Christ Jesus, a life that will transcend the brokenness of this world, a life that will remove the guilt and hopelessness that weighs down all those who are lost and bring them instead to peace with God. Everyone here that has come to salvation knows what it means that at one time you were weighed down by the guilt and death of your sin and the joy that it is to have that removed that you might have peace with God through Christ Jesus. And this is the message that Peter preaches to them. Before we read our passage this morning, I just want to note that Peter is preaching. It says he stands and he preaches. Here we are 2,000 years later, and I'm doing the same thing to you this morning. I'm standing up here, and I'm preaching to you. Many people will tell you that preaching is a thing of the past, uh, that preaching needs to be replaced with all kinds of things, basically anything other than what we're doing here this morning. But I tell you that preaching is a pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts because it's something that the Lord has instituted. It's something that is a fearful thing that a person would stand and proclaim the word of the Lord, but there's something about it where the scriptures are read and we hear from the Lord and we sit and listen as an audience to what God would have for us to do and be. And that something about it is very different. It's completely different than the entertainment world that we live in. But it's not just information. It does begin with information. It begins with knowledge about God, about who God is, about what God's will is. But then it goes on from there to move us in the heart, to move our emotions, to press us to be a different person. Logos and pathos, mind and will. And as we'll see here in the sermon of Peter, the scriptures are used. Three times he quotes the scriptures to bring to bear what God is saying to the people that are in the audience, that are listening to it. And there is something about the word of God that carries power with it because it is God's word. And so as we'll see in verse 40, Peter exhorts the people with many words. We see this sermon here this morning, but that caveat in verse 40 tells us there was a lot more said here than just what we're reading this morning. But the word exhortation is a powerful word. The basic definition is to emphatically urge a person to act. I am not just up here this morning giving you some information. I am going to press you to believe these things and to hear these things and have it break through other distractions in your life that you might hear what the Lord has to say and that you might act on those things. 
that you would not just go out from here today and say, that was really interesting, that was fascinating, I learned something that I'd never heard before, but that it would affect your heart in a way that God uses it to change your heart. This is the opposite of the postmodern world that we live in that says there is no real truth. There is no actual truth. It's just a hodgepodge of opinions, and everyone is entitled to their opinion. What I am telling you this morning is not my opinion. It's the truth. It's the truth about the world that we live in and the truth about God and the truth about heaven and hell and about the state of our souls. So I'm preaching to you. The same gospel that Peter preached, the same urgency that Peter preached with about the same Lord God, the same word of God, the same Holy Spirit, and I ask that you will listen. The people listened who, who Peter was preaching to and then they responded. And it's my prayer before this time and now at this time, that you would hear what the Lord has to say by his word. So let's stand, please, to honor the Lord as we read this passage of Scripture, which is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set of his one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ." that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And we're added that day about 3,000 souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. What a great passage. All right. So he dives right in to beginning with the prophet Joel, saying that the Pentecost day is the beginning of the fulfillment of this. We'll see that it goes all the way to the, to the end of the world, but it begins with the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. But before we get to explaining that, I want you to see that no sermon anywhere in the book of Acts begins with a few jokes to warm up the audience. No, it never happens. It's not the late, late show. You would not realize that from the way most sermons go down. It doesn't begin with a sports update as to what happened in the gladi gladiator arena recently to get us going. It just dives right into the Old Testament and the Word of God, getting to the message that the Lord has for the people. Preaching should always speak of Almighty God in the eternal matters of the soul because that's what the scriptures are about. Richard Baxter, a great English preacher from days gone by, is famous for saying, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And that's the way all preaching should be, I believe, that we do not know tomorrow. Not a single one of us know whether we will make it through this week. I was very much reminded of that this past week. And it is important that we are prepared to die. The last days is what this passage from Joel speaks about in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, it is uh, him speaking about what is going to happen in the last chapter of God's work. We are in that last chapter. When we get past the ascension of Jesus Christ, we are then looking for the second coming of Christ, which is the last chapter of this world. And so we have been in the last days for a long time. And we are much closer to the end of all things than to the beginning of these things. We don't know when that actual last day will be. Uh, the Lord Jesus is emphatically clear about that. But it is important for us to understand where we are in the history of God's working in the world. And we are in the last days, the time where he will pour out his spirit, as it says twice in these verses, in 17 and in 18. What will happen when the Spirit of God is poured out. It speaks of prophecy, the prophesying of sons and daughters. Prophecy is, a, is an important thing. Uh, it, it means many different things in different areas uh, of Scripture. In the Old Testament, we often tend to uh, associate prophecy with what often happens with the prophets, where they foretell something in the future, something that is said then that is fulfilled later, which is exactly what we have here, something that Joel said in the past that is fulfilled in the future. 
And it's not my understanding that when the word prophecy is used in the New Testament, it's not speaking of the same thing. It's speaking of another aspect of the prophetic word. Because in the Old Testament, another aspect of prophecy was simply the the servant of the Lord speaking the truth of the Lord. That's what the prophets did. They spoke the truth of the Lord. They often stood outside of the the city or outside of the normal flow of things and spoke the truth of God to the people. That's the, the most important part of the prophetic voice is that somebody is speaking the truth of God to a world and society that does not understand it. And this is the primary meaning of the prophetic voice in the New Testament. It is people speaking the truth of God. And so what happens is we go from the Old Testament where there is a particular tribe that are priests and a particular small set of people that are called to preach the word of the Lord to where when we go into the New Testament, it speaks about all of us being priests unto the Lord, all of us being those that go out and bear witness to the call of Christ Jesus. I am not the only one that is accountable here to go and bear witness to who Jesus Christ is, to tell the truth of God. All of us in the New Testament era are called to go and tell the truth of the Lord God to all those who will listen. And we have a prophetic voice in that way. We are speaking the word of the Lord to people that have not heard it. And we are bringing God's word and what has happened in Christ to these people that they might repent. And I believe that is what is being spoken of here. Also, in this time of the outpouring of God's Spirit, there will be visions and dreams and wonders and signs. During this book of Acts, we're going to see a lot of that. In the transition period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the period of the temple and the decline of the temple and the raising up of the church, during this transition period, a lot of supernatural things happen to affirm and confirm what the Lord God is doing through His apostles. It then begins to to lessen out. If you've read much of church history, you know that this is not the norm for church history. And this is an enormous conversation um, and one that we're not going to dive into fully here this morning. But I'll tell you basically uh, the position of the church on these things. That after establishing the church and the transition to the new covenant, such things become less frequent, but they are not uh, forsaken. God, it is God's will and his purposes to use these things in various ways as he will. And church history and missionary biographies are filled with everything that I just said there. Supernatural works that continue from the time of Christ to now, but they are in a lessened state because there is not the need to confirm a brand new movement of the Lord. We should never be surprised by supernatural things. We should expect supernatural things because God works in the world and he communicates his word to his people and he will act in such a way that accomplishes his purposes. But I think it is important to see that in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, the people in the early church are not seeking signs and wonders. What they are seeking is to preach the gospel and to do God's will and to obey his word. And the Lord uses what he will use to confirm his acts in that time. And I believe that it is still the same today. We are not about seeking signs and wonders in this church. We are about seeking God's truth and preaching the gospel. And along the way, if the Lord will act in some supernatural way to carry that along, that, are, that is up to him. And those are his purposes and his prerogatives. 
But that is not the center of what we seek. And it has no authority over scripture, which is the, the main uh, way that this boils down. As the Lord has given his word in scripture, it is our authority. And though someone may uh, have a dream or see something, nothing that a person sees or thinks they understand has authority over what we see in God's word. We are very clear here at Redeemer Bible Church that God's word is our authority. And we weigh all of the subjective experiences of our life by the authority of scripture. But that should not then press out the desire to see the Lord work in our lives and leave our hearts open to what he may do. But what we always want to reemphasize as the elders of this church, myself and the other elders of this church, is that the greatest supernatural work of the Lord is the salvation of a lost soul. We can never, ever lose sight of the primacy of the one thing that can never, ever, ever be faked by this world is the salvation of a lost soul. A sinner transitioning from death to life and seeing a person's life radically changed by a supernatural work of the Lord. And that is what God in Christ has emphatically sent his church out to do is to preach the gospel that the Lord might work, that we might see people come to salvation in a way that can only be explained by a work of the Lord. And so how this prophecy ends with Joel, after some verses in verse 19 and 20, which I believe speak even further ahead to the end of all things, as it says the, in verse 20, the day of the Lord, great and magnificent, which speaks to the day of judgment, the final day of judgment. But it wraps up in verse 21 in this very important New Testament verse. This is the first quotation of scripture given in the first sermon. And it ends with this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is emphatically seeking the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Those that will listen to him. If you will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And the Lord does many things along the way to bring people to salvation, but it is always about the salvation of the soul. And if anything that we are doing in the church gets off track to where we are no longer interested in or focused on the salvation of the soul, we have lost track of New Testament Christianity. In the 22nd verse, he goes on and starts talking about Jesus. Let's, let's focus in on Jesus. He talks about Jesus, a real man from Nazareth. Shown to be from God by many works and wonders and signs and seen by you in your midst. That some of these people were aware of the ministry of Jesus. They had had some real touch on who he was or heard about him or perhaps been in the audience when he was preaching or seen some miraculous thing that he had done. And he reminds them that he was delivered up in verse 23. Delivered up to crucifixion according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is very important. The crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus Christ is not a tragedy. It's not something that's, oh, this is terrible that this happened. How, how did these things come about? It was certainly not by chance where Judas happened to get the upper hand with the enemies of God, and then the Lord kind of came in at the last minute to, to pull it all together and make it work out. This is not what is happening here. It's not making the best of a bad situation. The narrative of the incarnation and life and death, the trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are by the foreknowledge and definite plan of God. 
This passage is full of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. We see both of these things going back and forth and back and forth in this passage with clear, emphatic statements. And so God sees his purposes in the future. This is related to foreknowledge. God looking at humanity in a way that we cannot really understand because we are so bound by time. We're looking down through this afternoon and this week and our planner and our view in the world is not like God's view in the world. But the Lord sees his purposes in the future and by his sovereign decree and determination accomplishes his purposes according to his particular plans. That's what it says here, very clearly. Um, a definite plan. It's, a, it's, it's no part of this is something that is outside of what God is doing. And so we see God's sovereignty in this. But we also see human responsibility because at no greater place or at greater length do we see the real, freely chosen actions of human beings according to their nature, according to their malicious, hateful, jealous natures striving to undo and kill the Lord Jesus. But in the and these two things together, what we have is we have God, evil people meaning something for evil. They are intending to destroy the Lord Jesus and his ministry, but what they intended for evil, God intends for good. And in the way that the Lord works, he takes the actions of evil people and he brings them together for his definite good purposes and final ends. How it is that the Lord can take a world that is on fire with evil and death and bring good purposes out of it is divine. It's the work of the Lord. The scriptures are abundantly clear that the Lord God is not the author of evil, but he is the redeemer. He is the one who is taking the evil actions of human beings and bringing good and redemption out of it. And so we have both things happening in this passage, and Peter is reminding these people of both. Jesus crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and he is raised from the dead, as it says in verses 25 and following, because death could not hold him. That's a powerful statement. That even though he was buried in the grave with a stone rolled in front of it, it death could not hold the Lord Jesus. And so he quotes a scripture, a proof text, if you will, to point the people to why he would believe this. And he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And in verses 27 and 28, it speaks to this. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so this psalm written by David is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is not abandoned to the realm of the dead. He is not left for corruption or for death, but he is brought back to life and walking in paths of joy and of life. These words are not referring to David. They are referring to Jesus, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And this is exactly where Peter goes with this. He, he quotes the psalm, and then he helps them understand, because they know the psalm is about David. And so he goes and talks about David a little bit and explains how this relates to the Lord Jesus. Because these words are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So in verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So that specifically speaks to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the Lord by the prophet uh, Nathan comes and speaks to David and says that he is going to make a covenant with David and there is going to be someone forever on his throne, that his kingdom will never end. The enduring nature of his family and ruling power will never end and David doesn't really understand how this is going to happen. It says here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And David goes on to worship the Lord, but is not clear as to what is going to happen here. But he writes this psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit of the Lord and in faith as to what God is doing. And so by the covenant promise made by God to David, David speaks prophetically of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of this promise, that the Holy One will not see decay, that Jesus Christ is the end and fulfillment of the covenant made to David. He is the son of David, the root of Jesse. Often it's called the son of David in the Gospels because people understood that he was from the lineage of David and he is the fulfillment of this covenant promise. And so Peter is explaining this to the people that David has written these things and these things were written about Jesus. This is who they were written about. These are who they were fulfilled in. Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father, it says in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. We don't put enough emphasis often on the ascension of Christ. You've heard me mention the ascension of Christ many times over the past few weeks because it's referred to constantly in the book of Acts. That the Lord Jesus is buried uh, and now is risen from the dead and is ascended. And where is he ascended to? He is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is seated in glory with the Father. And so uh, he quotes another psalm, Psalm 110.1. This is one that deserves some explanation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord saying to my Lord, what this is related to is the Lord God speaking to the Son of God. So think God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I subdue all your enemies. David wrote this, but again, Peter is saying this is not about David. This does not apply to David. It applies to Jesus. That the Lord God is saying to the Son, sit at my right hand. He who has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and is now seated there. We're going to see something very particular about this in some weeks when we get to Stephen. And Stephen getting a a, a literal picture of this before him. But since Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father, he is now seated there waiting until God the Father subdues all of his enemies under his feet, and then he will return again, and it will be the end of all things. When all the enemies of Christ and his church are subdued, Christ will return in glory, and it will be the end of all things. I encourage you with this. Peter means to encourage his audience by this. That there will come a time when the Lord God has subdued all the enemies of Christ. 
And all these things which we strive with in this world are over. All of the enemies of the Lord, all the enemies of his church are undone. I encourage you not to fret, dear people. There's a lot to fret about. There's a lot to wring your hands over in this world right now. And some people are being consumed by the struggles of this world. The evil of this world will not win the day. I need you to see that. That there will come a time when the Lord God will make all your enemies your footstool. That's a powerful statement. It's one that we have been waiting for for a long time, but it will not be accomplished until the end of all things. But by the foreknowledge and the definite plan of God, all the enemies of righteousness, all the perverse and violent, all those who love this world will one day be put down. They will be subdued by the power of God the Father and judgment of Christ the Son. This What Peter is saying, all of this, he then comes to them and says, this Jesus, this is Jesus, and this is the Jesus that you crucified, that you nailed to the cross, that you said, we have no God but Caesar. Let his blood be on our children. All these horrible things that we see at the time of the crucifixion trial, this is the Jesus that you crucified. They had horribly misjudged who Jesus was. They had completely missed it. And there may be some of you here today that are like that. You have horribly misjudged who Jesus is. You think he is one thing when he is not. He is something completely otherwise. He is the son of God. He is all that we have mentioned here today. And what is so powerful about this passage is the response. By the work of God's spirit, when these things are preached to this audience, what is their response in verse 37? Then they heard this, and they were cut to the heart. There's a lot said in the Bible about the heart, but being cut to the heart means that the message reached your heart, and it moved you. And something about it, you said, this is, I'm grieved, I am wrong. There's conviction here. They are moved emotionally by the truth that is spoken to them. There's sorrow over their sin. They're wounded in their heart over the way in which they treated Jesus and what they had thought about Jesus beforehand versus what they have learned about him through this preaching. And this sorrow, this conviction gives them a desire to turn away and to obey. There's a number of examples in the scripture of people who come to conviction, but the conviction is not to repentance. Cain is one of those people. After he kills his brother and his Blood is all over the ground, and the Lord comes to him and says, Cain, you have done evil. And there is sorrow on Cain's heart, but it's not to repent. It's sorrow that that leads towards death, the same type of sorrow we saw in the life of Judas some weeks ago. But in this case, it is a sorrow that leads to repentance, a desire to renounce self, to renounce this world to recognize our true guilt before God and ask the all-important question of what must I do to be saved? Because they understand they're under the judgment of God and that if they're going to be saved from this judgment, something's going to have to happen because they are not in a right relationship with God. And so in this passage, we see this, this beautiful progression of salvation and what happens. Preaching, conviction, repentance, belief, faith, their, their heart towards God changes from what it was to something else. And when they have believed in Christ Jesus and they have been forgiven of their sins, they feel compelled to obey the call of Peter to be baptized. 
and they become disciples of Jesus Christ. New life in their own heart, and then they enter into the church, the community of the church. This is not an individual thing that they walk this path alone. And then many of them continue to go out in mission. They spread out. They don't stay where they are, and they go and tell others about salvation of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the end of this, we see again human responsibility and God's sovereignty in working. There is no salvation apart from repentance and faith. When I call upon you to believe, if you've never put your faith and trust and salvation in Jesus Christ, you must. You must believe in him. You must turn away from old ways and take up new ways. You must believe in Jesus as your Savior. And when this salvation comes to you and you know that you have been forgiven of your sins, you must be baptized. This does not save you, but it is an act of obedience and profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's really important that we see here in verse 38, I believe. Repent and be baptized every one of you. The little phrase there that we shouldn't overlook, every one of you. It doesn't say repent and be baptized when you get around to it. Repent or be baptized if it's convenient and you can fit it in your schedule. Or as long as it doesn't embarrass you in front of people. Or I don't know, any number of reasons. For these people, it could have been, well, I've already gone through a lot of things related to the Old Testament. Perhaps I've been circumcised. I don't know, I've done a lot of ritual things related to God. And so I don't need to do this. It's very clear. And it's an unbroken pattern throughout the book of Acts. Repent, believe, and then be baptized as a result of your salvation. And so they do. They have this mass baptism after people come to salvation. It is the promise of salvation. A beautiful verse in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Peter reminds this audience that it is not just related to this day in this particular time. This is going to be an ongoing promise. The hope of the forgiveness of sins through the grace of God is not just for you, but it's also for generations to come. And it's for people that are not in this place. It's for all the nations. It is for those who are afar off. But then he reminds them again of God's sovereignty in these things. It is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we must respond, but it is the Lord who is calling. If the Lord does not call our hearts to him, we will not come. And so this is why we pray for the lost. We pray for our lost children. We pray for our lost neighbors. We pray for our friends and our coworkers. We share the gospel with them. We exhort them to believe and we ask God to call them to himself as we, by faith, believe that there is a constant interworking between the responsibility of human beings and the sovereignty of God in salvation. And so by these same things, 3,000 people come to salvation. Often we think of the early church as little small groups and homes. And it was that, but it was also huge audiences of people. There was a massive group of people listening to Peter here. And it's still the same way in the church. There are large groups and there are small groups. There are times for many people to gather together and hear the gospel. And then there are times for us to break down into smaller groups and eat together in each other's homes and welcome each other and pray for each other in small ways. But it is both. And in both ways, the gospel goes forward and people come to salvation. It is so interesting to contrast the, the response of this passage to a response a few chapters later. 
If you go over to Acts chapter 6 and 7, which we'll get to in some time, it's a preacher equally filled with the Holy Spirit. The preacher is Stephen, one of the deacons in the early church. And he is preaching before the council of the Jews, and he is so filled with the Holy Spirit that it says they look at him, and he appears to have a face like the face of an angel. And he goes and preaches another powerful sermon like this to declare to the people who Jesus was and what his plan of salvation was down through the ages. And when it comes to him bringing this powerfully to them at the final stroke of the sermon, it says not that they asked this question. They were not cut to the heart asking, what must we do to be saved? But this hardened audience, it says in verse 54 of chapter 7, they heard these things and they were enraged, and they ground their teeth. And if you know the story, they went out and stoned Stephen to death, and he was the first martyr of the church. And so we never know what is going to happen when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I preach it to you this morning, and I call for you to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins and turn away from this world, and to believe in the salvation of God, that you might have peace with God through Jesus, that you might have new life in him, and go out from this place different than you came in today. I urge you to realize the seriousness of the guilt of your sins, to call out in repentance to God. This is where it begins. To say, God, I am sorry. Will you forgive me of my sins? And to believe in Christ Jesus, that he might give you his life and make you new. And that it's you would go out to gladly associate yourself with Jesus Christ by being publicly baptized in his name, declaring that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what Peter did on that day, the way that you restored Peter from his fallen place of blaspheming against you and then being forgiven and strengthened and filled with your spirit to preach the gospel. Lord, every one of us here are sinners. Every one of us here began in the place of being separated from you. Every one of us were in need of repenting of our sins and believing in you. And I thank you for what you have done to save so many people that are here. But I pray for every person that is still lost, every person whose heart is unbelieving and hard towards you, I pray that today you would call them to yourself, that they would believe in Christ Jesus. I pray for everyone who has not yet had the courage to be baptized, to, to proclaim Jesus as Lord before the watching world, that they would take that step of obedience and have the joy and what it means to gladly proclaim this before the world. Lord, we pray for your work in our midst, that you would continue what you are doing in our time that you would continue your supernatural work of bringing the lost to yourself and displaying your presence in our midst that we might not lose heart until you come again. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.